Please visit anywhenanywhere.com for more information about this program. It's our conversation with Jeff Sellers. To be cool. Admin of the Panic on 13th blog. Local musician and archivist. And a rock and roll recount tour of the highest caliber. Wanting to be cool. When we think about a music scene, what exactly are we describing in our minds? What is this scene in its totality? Can we shape it in that way? Or is it even something that can be known as a whole? The most complicated thing about envisioning a music scene is that there are corners of it that you will never know, nooks and crannies that are not part of your experience, but are very much a part of the experience of the world, of the players and actors that participate in this scene that is acted out over time in the larger story of music. Uh, or maybe not even that big of a story. Maybe it's just the story of your town. Maybe your town has something to it that is different, is unique, needs some sort of special context in order for it to make sense to outsiders. Sometimes it's not even that complicated. There's just, you know, something that connects a town, a place, a group of individuals, folks that really care and really enjoy making music and find new ways to connect to it and to create it and to disseminate it and to get it out to people, even when there's not much available in terms of outlets. Let's make our own. You know, the entire philosophy of punk rock sends who knows when. Anyway, regardless, however you want to think about it, etc., etc., and then some, this is probably another way of just enabling me to have another one of those remember-when conversations. <laughs> because talking to Jeff Sellers very quickly reduced to us remembering things from the 90s that we loved. <laughs> This is a recurring theme on uh, this podcast, and it's uh, probably going to continue to be until the very last episode airs. Uh, and what can I say? Uh, it's not that my particular experience in the past was that much better than anyone else's. I have no interest in playing the uh, relativistic game when it comes to, uh, oh no, the 90s were better than the 70s or the 60s or the 2000s or whatever. Uh, that's all bullshit. Everybody is having their experience of their own generation's struggles and voice and uh, heroes and villains. And that experience is different, uh, unfortunately. Each 
new generation. And that doesn't mean that the ones that were before were worse, uh, or the ones that came later or were worse. That's all relativistic nonsense that uh, is uh, a way for people to complain about things that they don't like for arbitrary reasons. Obviously. Uh, I mean, it's nothing more. This is all about taste and things that you like, you know? Music is something that touches us in a very personal way. And so uh, our specific uh, likes, dislikes, what have you, almost kind of go out of the window. How can you explain to somebody else what you like and why you like it? It touches something that... uh, is special. It, it hits a sensibility that you appreciate. It uh, it says something in a way that makes you smile. It's really hard to pin that down. And so when you look at the larger scene, you have to include all of these things that are not necessarily in your experience or of your experience or even something that you necessarily care about. <laughs> because the larger story of the scene is not your interests. The larger story of the scene is, well, it goes beyond you. Whether or not you have a role in it, or you're just an observer, enjoying it from the outside. Jeff uh, very clearly, uh, you know, loves the Eugene music scene, as do I, and, and, and he spent very key years as a young child in his early teens uh, in the uh, late 80s and 90s, uh, going to shows, uh, meeting people, uh, playing music, uh, buying tapes, discovering DIY and punk rock uh, in ways that we all do at a certain age. And uh, once we have incorporated that into our lives and into our mindset, it really does change our paths forever. In Jeff's case, he became the documentarian, the one that kept track of all of this stuff, the one that when no one else was saying, hey, there's something special here that's disappearing. We need to capture this. Jeff was the one that stepped forward and started the Panic on 13th blog, where he not only keeps track of demo tapes and releases by bands that, uh, you know, were almost or were just kind of hobbies in a way, something fun to experience and enjoy with friends, Um, And, you know, he paints a very nice picture of the Eugene music scene, the one that I remember, where everybody was trying to do a little something on the side, and, you know, their flyers and zines and tapes and singles and radio shows really did inform the larger world that we all loved. I think, more importantly, Panic on 13th kind of tells this very simple story of, you know, we can make this happen. And that's a a lesson that I think people need to learn over and over and over again, regardless of what year it is, that uh, there isn't any particular barrier that's preventing you from making music, from talking to musicians, from participating in the world that you appreciate so much. Um, And in Jeff's case, you could even document it and play another role in the scene in a way that you didn't even realize you were playing at the time. You know, as uh, Jeff and I were buying tapes and House of Records and stuff like that, uh, there was no way that we could know that some of these things would uh, become nostalgic for people years later. 
And I think that's the beauty of the Panicom 13th blog that uh, um, is worth investigating. If for no other reason, take a little trip down memory lane and uh, imagine this time and place where people would get together and trade tapes and zines and talk about music that was happening in their own backyard. And there wasn't this internet to worry about. There weren't phones buzzing in our pockets, constantly drawing us away to some other party or some other thing. There wasn't this world stage acting out in real time as we were sitting there playing our shows or writing our songs, or even just drinking on the porch and talking about uh, how the weekend had been. There's something about that perspective and that lifestyle that it was significant. When we weren't able to just kind of keep ourselves plugged in 24 hours a day, the things we made, the things we did, the things we saw. Okay, maybe I was wrong. It was better, wasn't it? WTBC Radio in beautiful anywhere, anywhere. This conversation was recorded by phone on September 19th, 2018. I imagine uh, that uh, similar to me, uh, you have had a long-standing interest in um, rock and roll ephemera, uh, band posters, demo tapes, uh you know, videos, uh, photos, uh, interviews. Um, am I clocking you right on this one, or? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'd, I'd say fairly close. Um, I, I grew up in Junction City outside of Eugene, mm. about, I don't know, 15, 20 miles outside of Eugene, and it's a you know small farming town sure. at that time. Um, I mean, it's still small, but um, a population of about 3,000 people and I was always pretty interested in music. I started buying vinyl at like six or seven as soon as I got an allowance. <laughs> um, so, like, you, know, t- you know, top 40 singles and stuff, just real basic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, I, I probably, I think I discovered punk, um, I, I guess, fairly early. I mean, I, was, I, I, I owned the Sex Pistols record by the time I was 12. Oh, wow cool <laughs> and and like ramones records and stuff like that and um i guess for me i i discovered the the modern mono show on klcc uh, that... which used to be a weekly show on friday nights from eleven thirty to 2 30 in the morning mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and when i started listening to it I, I think um dave damage and and lenny who was the co-owner of diana's downtown were co-hosting it and then eventually mm-hmm. dave took it over and years after that, it moved over to KRVM, and Lucy uh, took over from there. Got it. But that that was what made me aware of like punk and independent music. Um, and after I discovered Modern Mono, it wasn't very far from there to figure out like, oh, the only place in town you can buy these records is Earth River Records and House of Records, <laughs> where coincidentally um, people that were in local bands worked. Right. So, yeah. uh, I started meeting people in Eugene bands probably by the time I was like 13 or 14. Oh, wow. 
See, well, that that, that uh, um, now I have so many questions already. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, I, I like this story so much for so many reasons because uh, to me, in my head, the radio and the record store are the two places where are like ground zero. You know, that's like where you learn about stuff. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, it, I found Modern Mono much later, but uh, similarly, when you find a show like that, that is uncovering things for you like it feels like a revelation it feels like oh wow i found it you know <laughs> like some sort of amazing secret that uncovers and unlocks so much i i certainly found that to be true um the the regular radio stations in eugene which at, i don't even know what's there now but at the time it was like kazel and <laughs> I, geez, I can't even <laughs> You know, having a background in rock and roll and listening to, to what was on the radio and being familiar with, like, you know, heavy metal and the Scorpions and stuff. You know, just the stuff that was popular in the early 80s. So Modern Mono mm-hmm. just was like, oh, so there's this whole other thing going on <laughs> that doesn't have a whole lot of money behind it that you have to, you know, spend quite a bit more effort to seek out. Yeah. yeah. And that, that was kind of appealing to me, like the notion that it wasn't spoon-fed and that you had to actually, like, search for these things and and find the small collection of people that were interested in the same thing like it was just like an instant community builder for those of us that had not felt a lot of community prior to that (laughs) well and what a perfect age too to start getting into rock and roll and punk rock because you know like 13 and 14 you're you're already kind of getting a little hip to like tv and top 40 and you're like uh you know you real you kind of see the plastic edges and you're like oh you know it just doesn't feel very genuine and then like rock and roll comes out and it's like it's rough hewn there's mistakes it, it's like it looks like normal guys are doing it you're like hey <laughs> yeah i, I yeah there, there was there was something humanizing about that and and you know i hadn't really thought about i hadn't thought about it a whole lot but now that you mentioned it i guess when i first discovered punk rock and you know more regional independent music mm-hmm. i guess it was you know probably like 1983 or 4 and i didn't watch any tv at all from <laughs> 1984 to 1990 like not a single show i've never seen a single episode of the cosby show i've wow. never you missed I just, cheers. I just didn't watch tv <laughs> at, the, at that time it just um and it wasn't because I thought it was particularly saccharine or anything. It just I, I have a pretty particular sense of humor right. that I was aware of pretty early, and there just wasn't anything that really catered to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in fact, I found like uh, if anything, like more of the humor and stuff I liked was in some of the music I was listening to. Because yeah. I'm a big fan of punk rock with really just stupid lyrics. Um, <laughs> no, you are you hit man, you hit the nail right on the head because like there's something that's so appealing to about that, especially to teenagers, where it's like, yeah, the Ramones really make sense when you're like 15 and mad, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think the Ramones make a lot of sense when you're when you're young and mad, and then you start to realize that they're also really funny. Yeah, and then as you get older, you 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 realize that even though the songs are really simple, there's just there's something about like no one else writes songs like the Ramones. I mean, there, there's mm-hmm. just something something they do with harmonies that's just better to me to my ear. Like when I hear a Ramones record, I mean, the first seven or eight records to me, it's like the first time you hear it, it sounds like a record you've been listening to for ten years. And I mean, not a good way. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, I remember my first exposure, and and it was in Eugene. A friend of mine, I had moved from Cottage Grove, where I went to high school, uh, and you know, moved to the big city. 
Um, and uh, I just remember going into this basement where this friend lived, and uh, he had all these records, and he put on Ramones, and it was like, I, I was kind of familiar with them, but def- you know, hearing it on a turntable in like a musty basement with this friend who had to go to a class later, like there was something about it that not only felt like grown up, but it felt like I had found some secret that was so like informative. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it, like the environment that you're exposed to it in can can have a big effect. I mean, if you yeah, if you listen to like a Ramones record for the first time in like a basement with your friend and his older brother or something, that's mm-hmm. that that's just like a that's a better place to start than like I don't know. Just I was in a store and heard a song on a radio and I bought the single. Yeah, there's <laughs> not much, yeah. not much of a story there, and, right? And, and I guess like that that's sort of how I was introduced. I guess the the very first music that I listened to that was pretty out of the spectrum, um, I had a friend when I was a kid in Junction City whose older brother was like just very well versed in music, uh, and I want I'm still friends with him on cool. Facebook. <laughs> um, but his brother played like Joy Division for me, uh, the Closer album, when I was eleven. Oh wow! And, and so like I, I had I had Joy Division's Closer at twelve. Oh and the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and Oingo Boingo. And Mm. for whatever reason, there was a really, um, I was much more aware, and I think it was because of Dave on the Modern Mono Show. Mm -hmm, I was mm -hmm. much more aware of what was going on in like San Francisco and Los Angeles than I was in Portland. Right. And I don't know how much that changed when Lucy took the show over. Um, Because like hardcore was never really my thing. And I I Mm -hmm, thought mm -hmm. that Modern Mono was probably a little more hardcore after it went to KRVM. Mm. So I, I was an infrequent listener after that. Right. I think that you're yeah. kind of picking up on something, though, that happened with the history of punk rock is that the Northwest definitely felt like, uh, pardon the pun, alien territory with the wipers and things like that. Um, and so even though they were absolutely in the same kind of like um, scene as uh, L.A. and New York and whatnot, uh, I don't think people caught on to Portland for quite some time, <laughs> you know, like the fact yeah, that oh, I, I think the Northwest in general, um, I mean, until, you know, grunge exploded in the early nineties. Right. Um, I think the Northwest in general has just been a giant black hole mm-hmm. for almost any creative output. Um, yeah. not that, they, I mean, there's tons of great stuff going on in the Northwest and, and, in my mind, there pretty much always has been. Right. Um, but, but getting anyone outside of the Northwest to recognize that is pretty difficult. Um, <laughs> yeah, you get your occasional, like, Sonics, but not a whole lot uh, else in terms of, like, the um, uh, the greater sweep of what's happening. Um, so you are perfectly primed uh, in your teen years with House of Records and uh, Modern Mama- Mono to uh, start getting exposed to the Eugene scene. And I I mean, like, I know that a lot of people love to get nostalgic about whatever, but as your blog kind of proves, I think there was something very special happening in that town, in that time, that wasn't being replicated elsewhere. Like, it had a certain kind of sensibility that was not L.A., that was not New York. It was kind of almost defining itself... Uh, in contrast to the other kinds of punk rock around, um, what was your first entree like? Who, what, what did, what uh, bands were the first ones uh, locally that you started getting turned on to? Um, the first local tapes I remember buying 
were Johnson Unit and Moose Lodge mm. in about 1984, maybe early 85. Cool. Uh, but yeah, I remember buying those because I'd met John O'Neill, who worked at House of Records and was in Johnson Unit and, and later Uncle Charlie. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the people that played in these bands, I mean, there was a couple central places like House of Records. Uh, was one place that local bands could consign cassettes. And I, I mean, at that time, I think nobody but E13 had a record. So that was, <laughs> right. That was like not even thought about. But um, but yeah, there was, uh, you know, punk bands or um, power pop bands kind of consigned to their stuff at House of Records. And then there was this whole other scene that I was never really a part of and never able to get a foothold into that was more industrial Oh, um, and yes. experimental, like stuff like Steam Shovel Monkey and Onomatopoeia. Right. And that scene seemed to congregate around uh, the book station, which I don't think is there anymore, but it used to be a gas station that was converted into a record and bookstore on <laughs> about, I want to say, 4th and Blair. Wow. Okay, I can picture um, that so, neighborhood. Like, you yeah. find all of these, you go there and there'd be like 25 cassettes on consignment from local artists that weren't at House of Records at all. Mm-hmm. And vice versa. So it was really... There was a weird division, even in a town as small as Eugene amongst the bands, but the bands that that played semi-similar styles were all very supportive of each other. Yeah, Um, for sure, for sure. And I think that's a sensibility that stuck around. uh, You know, and I don't know, because, I mean, I I left Eugene in 93, Mm -hmm. and I came back for about a year and a half, and moved out for good in 96. Uh, okay. So I don't know really what's transpired at all in the last <laughs> 22 years. Um, sure. And, and, you know, I, I'll be put my cards on the table. My heyday ended in like 2000, and I stayed in touch a little bit after that. But even then, I was kind of paying attention to my other more local scenes. So I was kind of losing touch with Eugene very quickly. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and you know, I think that happens. I mean, there's a natural um, sort of cycle to to a Eugene life if you're a young person and you're playing music because of the university. So, right. you know, most people are, you know, four to six years and then move on. Right. right. Um, so there were big I, – I, I, the bands that I loved when I was first – getting into this. And some of it was just economics because, you know, I was young without a lot of money. So I'm like working at some fast food job after high school or something. So if you have limited resources and like, Oh, there's some popular band coming to town, but a ticket's like $30 and a a shirt's $20. And and then it's like, you compare that. It's like, Oh, but I can go see snake pit and it's $3 to get into the show. Um, I, you know, they might hand me a plastic cup so I can drink beer for free while I'm there and I can buy their tape for $3. And if I ask one of the band members nice, they'll probably make me a shirt by hand. Right. This is like a very different and more personal feel. Yeah. um, Well, and 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 it's, it's so attractive too, because like it feels inclusive where, like heavy metal felt exclusive in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, the kind of blending of genres, because like, I mean, Snake Pit was taking cues from punk rock, obviously, but from a lot of other stuff too, with like, you know, harmonies and like uh, uh, kind of jangly bits and whatnot. Like uh, there was... Yeah, yeah, I know like Mike Johnson, um, you know, I, I haven't spoken to Mike in years, but at, at 
that time when he was doing Snake Pit, I mean, mm-hmm. his his favorite bands were like the Thirteenth Floor Elevators and the Stooges. <laughs> and then if you listen to Snake right. Pit, it's like you can hear some of that influence of the Thirteenth Floor Elevators, mm-hmm. even though most people when they hear Snake Pit tend to think of like Husker Du or something like that. Yeah, well, um, and then and that's certainly in the stew. Uh, but um, I mean, I think they even do um, covers of uh, Elevator songs. Um, uh, on oh, I don't know if they did. I know they did TVI by the Stooges, but I, I don't know that they ever did a thirteen four elevator oh, okay. song. But yeah, Mike absolutely loved. And if you listen to the, the way he solos and stuff, you can definitely hear hmm. that psychedelic influence. Yeah, I'll um, have to review the tape I have. <laughs> it's time for dial a song. Hey, what the hi? It's John F of They Might Be Giants, and you're listening to Austin Rich on WTBC Radio in beautiful anywhere. Anyone. It's a podcast with Austin, and this is They Might Be Giants Song of the Week. This is the latest from us. It's our dial song. point about local scenes and stuff mm-hmm. I, I felt like eugene was also really unique in that way yeah um because everyone was was supportive and like the only scene that i really knew anything about just due to proximity i knew a little bit about portland mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. 
in the mid and late 80s. And I found Portland to be very elitist and uh, competitive, like uh, unnecessarily competitive. Yeah, there's um, certainly uh, a, a still a little bit of that uh, <laughs> thread going through right now. <laughs> I, I, I feel that way 100% about Portland. I, 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 don't, I don't know that there's... I, I'll get flack for this, but I don't, I don't know that I can think of a lot of towns that I've spent much time in that um, the creative community is less supportive of each other's efforts than Portland. Yeah. It feels like a lot of uh, solipsalists kind of like staring at their feet and kind of wondering why they haven't been discovered yet. And, you know, like, yeah, it was, um, I I don't know. I I mean, I do, I have a fondness for many bands from Portland and there is still some really cool elements of that scene. Don't get me wrong. Uh, But I, I definitely feel, well, you know, the smaller the town and the smaller the scene, I think the more insular and supportive it has to become, you know, like you have to like let everybody in and kind of help keep each other afloat. Cause like in a town like Portland, only the best can afford to play a show, <laughs> you know? Um, and in a small scene, yeah, you know, there, there's probably a night where there isn't any shows at all. And so like, you know, finding ways to be supportive in those dry spells and small scenes is very important. Yeah, I thought, um, I don't know if it's unique to Portland or if it's just something about my persona and Portland don't get along too well. <laughs> but uh, in the 20 years that I was in Los Angeles, I mean, I, I, I you know, I started when I, I moved there when I was 26. And right away, I started going to shows and just trying to see what kind of scene existed there. And if it was, you know, mm-hmm. like maybe I could start a band or get involved in some way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm, I, you know, I met a number of bands in Los Angeles. And I found that the, the attitude there was very different. Um, where in Eugene, it was just people that it, it wasn't necessarily like we got the most skilled people we could find together to start a band. It was like people started bands with people they liked. And if one person was less skilled, you just dealt with that. And, <laughs> right. And, and, and that was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Los Angeles, uh, one of my early neighbors was a drummer who was in two or three bands. And he told me, that, oh, yeah, here bands, um, if you don't get signed in like a year, you just break up and start another band. <laughs> right. And that seemed like, the, like everything about that seemed like the wrong reason to do it for me. It was like, because um, Bruno from Moose Lodge, I, Wayne Shellabarger from Billy Jack told me this quote that uh, Bruno, when he was in Billy Jack singing for them, said that starting a rock band is the stupidest thing you can do. <laughs> And, oh, and, I love Billy Jack so much. <laughs> well, and, and Bruno's sense of humor was so particular. I mean, those guys like the Moose Lodge tape and Billy Jack. I mean, mm-hmm. Bruno being the only common member. Um, oh, I guess now Joe Brooks, I think, was in Moose Lodge for a little while, too. Yeah. Anyway, okay. um, um, but yeah, that, that sense of humor was so specific to Eugene. It's almost like some of those earlier bands were a combination of stand-up uh, and, mm, and music. Yeah, no, especially, I mean, a Billy Jack show was something very specific, too, because, like, again, a band taking cues from punk rock, but, like, their songs are, are like, comedic diatribes, you know? Like, they don't quite have the same, like, dead milkman quality that Rodney has, but, like, they were in their whole other own universe. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. The Billy Jack guys are really, really funny. Yeah. I mean, um, and and I, you know, I, I love that band too because of the way it, it ended. 
mm. which was, and as far as I know, this is the only Eugene band that's ever done this, but the last <laughs> version of Billy Jack that played on stage included not a single original member of the band. Oh, yes. <laughs> they, they, oh. They, 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 like, I, I think on my blog, I called it a full wall of voodoo because that was like the only other band I could think of that did almost the same thing. Right. I think the only original member at the end of their career was the drummer. <laughs> uh, and there's something like, I mean, it, it, Billy Jack felt like so prescient too because like some of their jokes still i feel like they still land you know like um crystal up my butt still feels like a description of so much of oregon <laughs> I, I, in fact i think if, if anything the crystal up my butt joke has only become more accurate as more money has entered eugene yeah exactly <laughs> I, like, I, I, like i think it could almost be a de facto theme song for the city at this point like i, I don't recognize eugene when i go there anymore yeah there's it, it feels like there's a lot more money Mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm. you know that's fine. Um, it's it's a nice place to live. I mean, money was going to find it eventually. Right, right. Uh, well, and, and like, um, just I think the economics of things have changed so dramatically to where like, you know, uh, neighborhoods where uh, you used to have like um, ickies and these other kind of like fringe, small, all ages venues. There's just no room for them. You know, there's a there's too too many like hipster taquerias and breweries. Well, there's room for them, but it just has to be a place that no one wants to go. Right. Um, yeah, further and further like, out. <laughs> well, I remember, no, I don't think too many, I mean, there's so many venues in Eugene that have existed, and they're all brief. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But I think it was, was it the Caribbean Club? There was a place on like 2nd and Lawrence in an old warehouse mm. uh, in 1988 or 89 that was just a terrific venue in the middle of nowhere, like no residence, no residences or anything. So ideal. I'm sure that they weren't zoned for shows, but yeah, like fantastic shows went on there for, I don't know, eight months, 10 months. No. Um, but, 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 but like it, it has to be something like that. Like um, mm. the industrial area off of I-5, a little north of town. Right. Yeah. You know, where they're just kind of nothing but pawn shops and, and like scrap metal <laughs> and auto body shops. That's, that's the kind of place it's going to have to be like, like economically you can't open a, an all ages music venue or even a music venue in downtown Eugene or on campus anywhere. It's just not economically viable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's where you're going to have like, you know, another Reverend Horton heat reunion show or something like that. Um, yeah, and you know, and, and that's great and stuff, but it's like, you know, I think John Henry's, and I don't even know if John Henry still exists, but John Henry's <laughs> in their original location, I felt like mm-hmm. they were there at the right time, and that was about as well as a traditional rock club could hope to do in Eugene. Right. And I remember going to weeknight shows at John Henry's where I was like one of fewer than 10 people in the audience. Oh, for sure. Yeah, so it's just... It's tough to find a space. You have to find someone that's passionate about local music. Yeah. There's just no money in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's just no money in it. So it has to be a labor of love. And this is something um, that uh, has not changed, uh, strangely enough. I mean, so much has changed about scenes in the last like 20 years or so um, that make some of these stories have more context. But uh, the one thing that hasn't, uh, in my opinion, is that uh, in every scene, no matter what, uh, the passionate people make the scene happen or it doesn't happen at all. <laughs> you know, like you need someone who's willing to lose money on uh, a Wednesday night show before a scene actually will come together. <laughs> yeah, that that's absolutely true. Because mm-hmm. 
in Eugene, I mean, the, the, the cassette label that was putting out everything when I started buying things, I mean, there was a label called Dunghill. Oh, yes. And Dunghill was, you know, Johnson Unit story. It was like Steve Nordby and Robert Christie mm-hmm. and John. It was basically Johnson Unit. And I think, I'm not sure if Mike Johnson was involved. I know Al Larson was involved in some Velvet Sidewalk right away. Oh, Maybe nice. Kathy Malloy, who managed Naked It, too. But so, like, and Al is a very, very creative driven person. I mean, all of those people right. are to different degrees. So, like, they put out cassettes and organize shows in houses or on lawns or wherever they could. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but without the efforts of the, the members of Snake Pit and Johnson Unit, then, yeah, none of that, I, I don't think any of that stuff would have, or it would have happened, I guess, still, but it would have been less coherent. I mean... It would have been harder. It, it just felt like it shaped things. Like you had, mm-hmm. like, Johnson Unit, eventually Uncle Charlie with Snake Pit, and then, you know bovine impulse that became rawhead Rex, and then Al right. quit snake pit and started some velvet sidewalk but it was really you know maybe 15 people in a combination of four or five different bands that were kind of the glue that started it to me right um and there's stuff before that too I, that's one that's been one interesting thing doing my blog is uh finding out like there was sort of a secret first wave of punk and alternative music in Eugene and like from about 79 to 82. Right. But it was uh, of course, as you were saying, kind of less coherent and, and spread out. But, well, it's weird because th- there were bands and stuff. And now that I've uh, been given flyers and fanzines from that time from different people that have read my blog, it's funny, like the scene when it started in from like 79 to 82 was probably a lot more vibrant and visible in the community than it was from about 83 to 1990. Interesting. Because there was no place to play. Like, I think there was a Dead Kennedy show at the Wow Hall where some damage was done to the Wow Hall, and they basically banned uh... punk rock from the Wow Hall after that. So, there was, so you couldn't have a punk rock show at the Wow Hall unless it was in the basement, and even that was few and far between yeah okay um, so by the time like all these other bands started there was no regular venue for anyone to perform in yeah and so max max's didn't start letting in alternative bands until like rawhead rex headlined there in like 89 or 90 and i remember it was a big deal like like everyone in the scene was like everyone has to go to this show so that they start letting <laughs> bands in here and and and, that, and people did sure and sure. max's I think Lucy took over their booking not too long after that, and um, and that became like the home base for anyone playing original music. But prior to that, there was nothing for like five or six years. I mean, you know, club bag and place like, non traditional venues, but there wasn't mm-hmm. like a bar or a normal place that listed its stuff in Eugene Weekly or whatever it was called. It was called something. What's happening at that time? <laughs> right. There was just there was nowhere to find out about that stuff. It yeah. was all word of mouth. It was all flyers. Yeah. Well, you know, <clears throat> we should talk about your blog more specifically now because uh, we've mentioned it several times, but we haven't. I mean, we 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 kind of been dancing around it, really. Uh, Panic on Thirteenth, uh, which is a, a blogspot blog named after the um, famous uh, cassette compilation from '86, I think. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and uh, th- I mean, this this comp. Oh my gosh, <laughs> like. It was legendary by the time, I mean, in the mid-90s, when I was uh, doing my time in Eugene, this comp was still legendary then. (laughs) 
Yeah, it, it, it's funny. Like, it had... Like, the Positively 13th cassette mm-hmm. that was the comp that followed it in 88 right. on Dunghill might actually be better, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I still like Panic more. <laughs> I was like, Panic... That, that, that cassette was the first compilation that kind of put that scene in one place where you could just hand the cassette to someone and go, here's what's going on in the town that you didn't know about. Right, yeah. Um, well, and it was such a good introduction to these people that I was meeting that were in other bands. And you're like, oh, here's what happened before all of this. <laughs> you know, so it gave some yeah. history to the scene um, that like, I just remember when I stumbled across it, again, my roommate, uh, I should mention him now, uh, Sierra, who introduced me to all of this stuff, who grew up in um, Pleasant Hill and then in Eugene, um, he had all these tapes and stuff. So it was like, one afternoon, we'll listen to the Panic tape. And, you know, another afternoon, he's like, oh, yeah, you got to hear everything by Snake Pit. And, you know, so it's like, the, the, that was kind of these things where, like, I was so excited about the current thing happening with, like, you know, the uh, Oswald and all of the stuff that had ha- formulated from there. And he was like, oh, don't forget, we've been at it for a while. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's funny, because um, what you're talking about, I think most people that go to the Panic on Thirteenth blog are, are are more people that are looking for that kind of like early to mid nineties stuff. Oh, interesting. And and I mean that that's what I seem to get the most emails about and stuff. And um, the period that excites me the most is like nineteen eighty to nineteen eighty eight. Right. And I started being in bands in nineteen eighty eight. And people that were my age kind of took over the scene by 1990. And in my mind, like that, that crop of bands were all completely inferior to, <laughs> to what had gone on previously. Mm-hmm. And that's not just like, you know, being overly self-critical. I mean, I've got the tapes. Like my, right. my yeah. early band, my first band would have had to have been much better just to have sucked. And <laughs> there's, there's so many... There's so many other things where you can tell it's like, okay, these people, it's their first band and they haven't been playing long. Right. And, and you know, there's some sloppy nice moments here and there on demo tapes. But overall, I just felt like the earlier stuff was a lot more interesting. Yeah. And, and Well, and that must have been your impulse to start cataloging it and presenting it on the blog, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, because uh, Yeah, well, I, 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 I always felt that like that, that period in Eugene was special. Mm-hmm. In, in some and it was some of it was the music and some of it was just knowing the people and 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 how unique the people were, um, and and I, I kept figuring like someone is eventually going to chronicle this somehow or something and I really didn't want it to be me, <laughs> but, it, but like I I because I like I I was a fan of those bands but I wouldn't even go so far as to say I was friends sure. with those people. Yeah. I was I was an acquaintance of those people, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't go to their parties or hang out with them or anything. I was I was just younger enough that it would have been weird. Right, right, right. As you were saying, you were, uh, started going to these shows as a pretty young teenager. So like, while you know it's not weird that you might go to a show to see them, like to get to their party, like there's a big age difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you know at that point I'm like six or 17 like it'd be weird to go to a party with a bunch of people in their mid-20s right yeah um, yeah or, or late 20s and like and, and i was the, the dunghill thing started dying by 88 89 those bands like it was getting to the point where some of the members were starting to move out of town they'd already been in eugene for a year or two after they finished college right uh, and i started a, a label called disgraceland 
to sort of pick up where Dunghill left off. Uh, so I was like doing cassette only releases and stuff by the time I was 18. Oh, nice. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I'm sorry, I'm jumping all over the place, but jumping sure. clear back to the, the formation of the blog, I, I did feel like the music was strong enough and there was enough good bands that someone would do some sort of homage to it. And it never happened. And then it was like, okay, well, I've carried a couple of shoe boxes of demo tapes around for, you know, 30 years or something. So <laughs> there's probably not a whole lot of other candidates to do this. Right. Um, Who still has the so tapes? I started it and I, I was worried people were going to be pissed off. And because, mm-hmm. you know, in, in some cases I, you know, I put some stuff up before I asked people right. because I didn't have any way of contacting them at that time. And Facebook changed all of that. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty easy to track down old band members and get permission if they'll write you back. Mm-hmm. But I, I just wanted that chronicled and, and thinking of all those demo tapes that I'd lugged around for 30 years and how many really great songs were in there and memories for me. And I it just, I kept thinking like, okay, Eugene has to just be a snapshot of any town that right. size. Yeah. So to me, that means like, and, I, and I've never seen another blog like mine on the internet. Never. Yeah. I've never seen it d- dedicated to one specific city where someone's just chronicling the history of of alternative music or original music in one city. And and that's... I, I'm shocked about that, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Because I sort of uh, tend to think like, hey, if I thought of chronicling my hometown's music, then certainly there's some version of me in every town that size. <laughs> You would think there'd be a lot more of these dedicated to a single scene blogs, and mm-hmm. there aren't. And that means, if you think about how many demo tapes are recorded or home recordings made in relation to how many traditional CD or records come out, oh yeah, ninety like percent of music that's recorded and committed to tape is lost. Oh my gosh, yeah, I, I think about this constantly. Where like those Nuggets compilations, which are representing the great classic '60s uh, rock and roll singles uh, of that era yeah, yeah. Um, that there needs to be a cassette dive done uh, and soon before these tapes rot uh, because there are probably hundreds and hundreds of hidden gems all over the country buried on these demo tapes uh, that and not everybody as you pointed is even aware that no one's taking the time to save this <laughs> yeah and I don't know if there's I mean to, as far as I know there's not a blog or someone putting out, you know, bootleg comps to chronicle some of this stuff. I mean, yeah. I know there was nuggets and I think at the same time there was the back to the grave comps that were doing sixties garage rock. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and we moved further and there was like the, the power pearls covers like uh, oh, right. independent power pop from the seventies and eighties. And then there's the killed by death series that covers a lot of the independent punk singles mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the killed by death series is great. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's a bunch like that, but there's nothing that's specific to demo tapes. Yeah. Not yet. And, and I, 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 I found so. a blog or two, but, but mm-hmm. even those are not focused. They're just like, here's some demo tapes that I acquired somehow. It's not specific right. to any region or time period. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a good time to mention um, kind of something that is almost like the um, uh, sibling blog to Panic is one that just sim- simply focuses on the Ickies scene, um, which is yeah, the, that the, one. That that's the closest thing I've seen. Yeah, Ickies. the Ickies Tea House uh, uh, Library, I think, is what it's called. Um, but it's run by Josh Jones of Artless Motives, and um, uh, he uh, um, b- 
basically any bands that played in that scene or were a part of it are welcome to send in their tapes and he hosts them there. Um, and I think he's moved it all to archive.org now because of, you know, logistical things and whatnot. Um, but it's the, I think it's the only other comparable thing I can think of. And, and I've searched for other towns too, like you've mentioned. And occasionally you find like one guy's website where he's like, here's a list of my favorite bands from the scene or something. But it's not comprehensive like yours because you have like links to the songs, in some cases videos of things from like cable access. People send in zines that you've reprinted and reproduced. Um, it's a really cool collection of this actually a fairly wide range of time too you know like almost 15 years yeah thank you yeah i mean it's i've been surprised how much material has been sent my way and a lot of people held on to stuff Mm -hmm. but it just seemed to be you know being shoe boxes in an attic or something just like a little memory box so my blog kind of gave them a way to digitize that and make it public and they can still kind of have it without necessarily having to physically hold on to something that they don't want to hold on to anymore. Sure, sure. Um, well, and to share. So, so it's almost like it's become a repository for mm-hmm. for this mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Yeah, um, but it gets to have like a, um, a second life in some ways because, you know, so um, I'll give you a personal example. My cousin, uh, who uh, was a big Sun Velvet Sidewalk fan, um, but to her, it was mostly like these shows that she went to and this tape that she had that was kind of like degrading as time went on. Uh, and oh, yeah. So, so I was just able to send her a couple of links to your blog, and she just had a blast from the past and was like, oh, my gosh, I'm having all these memories. And she's able to hear the songs again better than she'd heard them in years. And you know, I think that's one of the kind of magical uh, time-traveling elements that Panic on 13th enables is that it really evokes a time and place thing if you were there. Like, you can kind of recapture it uh, almost better than the quality of the fading zines are in your attic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's easier to access, and you can access it from, from anywhere, mm-hmm. which is nice. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I, when I started the blog, I mean, I never saw it as being something that would have... Uh, uh, like I, I didn't think a lot of people would be interested. I thought hmm. this is a blog that will be the coolest thing in the world for like a hundred people, and <laughs> nobody outside that group of a hundred will give a shit. Right, right. Um, and that turned out to be really wrong. I mean, I, I eventually started a Facebook page in conjunction with the blog. Yeah. And the Facebook page, I think, has like over eight hundred members now. Yeah. Which is a lot more than I ever thought there would be, and the blogs. There's a, there's a thing on Blogspot that you can see how many people have viewed your blog or how many times. And I, like, I haven't checked that number in a couple of years, and it was over 80,000 the last mm-hmm. time I checked. And I was shocked that anyone <laughs> would care. Um, and, and some of the stuff that's downloaded, too, because you can see what's been downloaded. Sure. And like some of the stuff that's been downloaded the most is stuff that like I hadn't even really heard of, and someone just sent me on a lark, and I just put up. <laughs> if you want it, you can have it. If you are looking for professional photography and contemporary style and glamour, then J. Jean Portraits is your destination. Based right here in Salem, Oregon, just like this podcast, J. Jean Portraits can offer the right kind of photos for the project that you have in mind. To help wet the whistle of people interested in J. Jean Portraits, we are holding a contest. 
for the person or artist who would like to do a little photo shoot on us. Please send an email to austinrich at gmail.com and explain why you should have your band, art project, or whatever photographed in a short paragraph. And the most interesting entry will receive a full photo shoot package courtesy of J. Jean Portraits. You do not want to miss out on this opportunity to get professional quality photography for free. So please enter to win a free photography package with J. Jean Portraits. That's jjeanportraits.com. A professional look tailored specifically for you. Well, you, you got a, a fair amount of submissions for the blog, too, um, just from people who were in the scene and fans and whatnot. Um, like, uh, do you have any, like, favorite discoveries that you've made that way? Um, yeah, actually, probably my favorite discovery, and I'd heard of them, but I had never heard them prior to doing the blog, was Punishment Farm. Oh, yeah. Um, I, again, I, I probably had heard the name, but I don't think that until your blog I had heard them. Yeah, I, I, I certainly hadn't, and um, I acquired. Oh, you know, I should talk about this too. Um, back at when I was a teenager, I a lot of the videos and stuff that are posted on my blog are stuff that I actually shot. Oh, cool! Um, I didn't realize that. Like, like the like the sun velvet sidewalk. I can't remember if I put the rooftop stuff up or not. Mm. But there, there's a there's a like I'll put up a, a clip of them playing on a rooftop in Eugene from the late '80s on YouTube. Oh, nice! And like, and, and I shot that. Like, like we we lugged all their crap to the top of this office building that my uncle owned, and so sun velvet sidewalk. <laughs> played on this roof and we shot that like in one take about a 15 minute set nice and and i and like and that was also a, a secret way of getting into shows because mm-hmm. uh because i was you know i was 18 and to see i remember satiricon would book like uncle charlie rawhead rex some velvet sidewalk and snake pit mm. so you'd have to drive to portland to go to a traditional venue to see four Eugene bands. Right. <laughs> and, and, like, and I was 18, so I couldn't get into a bar. Right. So what I would do would take my, vi- I'd take my video camera and I'd be like, I'm a University of Oregon film student making a documentary about these bands. Sure. Nice. And they, 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 let, they let me in every time. <laughs> <laughs> Kids, and, take and note. <laughs> that was, it had to be like massively against the law. And oh, sure. Uh, I'm, I'm sure... That they, they, yeah, you know, that that was a, probably not the best thing for me to be doing. But I'm glad that I did because none of that, uh, none of the footage would exist. And the best yeah. footage I have, I've, um, I haven't put up. I, I shot some, I, I have some fantastic stuff of Snake Pit, but, um, but, but band members uh, are not, don't have fond memories of the live show, so I've been asked not to put up any live Snake Pit. Oh, uh, well, and you, you're very clear about that too on your blog. You know, hey, if you don't want this stuff up here, please contact me. Uh, it sounds like most people are agreeable, though. I, I've actually never had anybody um, write me to ask me to take something down. Oh, wow. Interesting. Uh, I, I've, I've, in fact, I've only ever gotten minor crap about it once or twice. Mm. And even the minor crap I got about it was the Eugene sense of humor. And I'd already received permission from other band members to put this stuff up. So it was never... 
it, it was never it was never even a contentious moment. It's been fine. <laughs> um, but yeah. I but I do like to keep that up there because you know in my own case, like I have my first band's demo. Oh, could nice. I post it? Sure. Would I want anyone to hear it? God no. I mean, it's, like <laughs> it's an audio crime against humanity. It's just it's wretched. Um, so there's certain stuff like that where it's like okay. There might be four or five people out there that still remember that band's name. We never released anything. Mm-hmm. But this doesn't necessarily add anything to the Pantheon, except <laughs> here's a terrible demo that I played on. Like, right. that, that does no one any good. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of bands that you played in, were, were there ones that you are less embarrassed uh, about? Or uh, uh, are they all kind of in um, that same category? <laughs> no, like, my, my first band was the Exploding Cats, and we were really bad like everyone was just learning to play uh, um okay but it was fun you know like we got to it was friends hanging out and sure you know drinking beer and writing bad songs yeah yeah i've been in plenty of those bands <laughs> and geez I, I was in a couple things that like you know we practiced for four or five weeks and played one show and then uh, no one called each other again sure probably the most significant band i was in um and we and we only played I think two or three shows we were probably not even a real band, but bunny summer was probably the, mm. the closest thing to a real band I was in. Right. Um, and I started that in 1991 mm. at the height of, uh, the popularity of grunge. Right. And I, I wanted to go with like the wimpiest sounding name we could think of. <laughs> and, and, and our, and our instrumentation was two acoustic guitars and a snare drum, and I wanted to only play with hardcore punk and grunge bands. Oh, that's great. Uh, I love it. <laughs> and and even the other people in the band were not really on board with that. So it didn't really happen. Sure. Um, but the, but the, the players were all really good. So, like, I did, you know, I, I was just a singer. I was not nearly good enough uh, as a guitarist to play in that band. <laughs> but... Um, you know, Rachel Blumberg was the drummer. Um, a guy I went to high school with named Sean Reed was the guitar player, who's still the best guitar player I've ever met. Oh wow! Uh, and um, and Adam Glogauer played bass guitar or drums, depending on the song. <laughs> so it's like, there was a lot of talent there, but just not a lot of focus. Sure. Um, sure. But there, there is. And we, we actually have a single. Oh, nice. <laughs> did, you, is, did you front yeah, the money we, up front? Did you pay for this up front? No, no. I, I, I sent our demo tape. Like There, there was this huge um, pop movement going on on the East Coast, like really kind of like postcard records pop, like very pretty okay. Aztec Camry kind of stuff all yeah. over the East Coast, sort of as a direct uh, contrast to grunge. So Benny Summer was on the wrong coast, and mm-hmm. I sent our demo tape off to this company in New York, and I, I'd actually recorded it. Um, I was trying to get an Evil Twin Weather record made. Mm. They were a Portland band that I loved. And so I put our demo on the other side of this cassette that I was sending to this record company and they had no interest in doing an evil twin brother record, but they wanted to put our record out. (laughs) And I was kind of like, well, you know, I live in Seattle and the rest of the band lives in Eugene and we haven't all been in the same room in two and a half years, but okay. (laughs) And you don't get a lot of opportunities like that sometimes. So you got to take them when you get them. Yeah, it was, it was weird. So they, they agreed to put out our record and then they didn't actually, release it that we, we got like 70 copies of the record in the mail over two years later <laughs> oh wow so it was like okay so by the like now it's 1995 and we have a record 
of a demo we recorded in early 1991, <laughs> and two of the band members don't live in the town. It was just, it was a mess. <laughs> and, um, and by then, this, you know, grunge was kind of like changing into other things, and, and, and it seemed like less important to make a statement against it, and... You know, on and on. I, I, I still liked being wildly out of step with any... I mean, there wasn't anyone else in town that sounded like us. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, but, you know, mm-hmm. that, that could have been... There could have been a reason for that. It could have been that no one was very interested. In <laughs> <laughs> we, we certainly were out of step with, with what the traditional Northwest... Mm. I, I always think of Northwest rock as like the rats or, or something like sloppy, oh, like, yes. real, like good song, good songs, but like played real loose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, I, I love that. Yeah. But bunny summer was not that we were very, um, a rigid's the wrong word, but like they just, the playing was cleaner. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I was less embarrassed about that. <laughs> for, for sure, for sure. I think what you've tapped into with this blog that um, I've been thinking about a lot is that, like, you know, all over the world, there are people who have these uh, shoeboxes of demo tapes, maybe a single flyers from their shows that they put on that represent like a band that they were in, um, and you know, sometimes people just pull it out, look at it fondly, and go like, hmm. Uh, but you figured out like that there's a second life to all of this stuff that can not only like um, uh, reignite our imag- imaginations and whatnot, but like connect us with music that we didn't know we would love as much. Like I- I'm going to say it right now, E13, a band that I really only ever knew from that one panic track and uh, kind of by reputation, I have come to love through your blog. <laughs> Yeah, E13, and, and, and hardcore has never really been my thing. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But but Lucy, who hosted Modern Mono, when I was putting together the first Disgraceland compilation after Dunghill mm-hmm. folded, um, I remember her telling me that you know, something like, private party tapes suck. <laughs> and what she was saying is, don't, don't put out a compilation tape where you just go to all your friends right. and get one track from each of your friends' bands and put that out. Like, Try to have a broader spectrum. Sure, I thought it was real, like that. That was something uh, I've always remembered. That I mean, it's it's been thirty years since she said that to me, and I always remembered that. That like with my blog, it's what my taste is is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. What matters is it went on during this period, and whether or not it registers with me and is important to me, it could very well be very important to someone. Right, for sure. So, like, so what? What kind of music I like doesn't matter. Like that, then that's why you'll see some stuff that, like, you know, like uh, Big Bubba, for example. That that's mm-hmm. like a right. speed metal punk band. Not my thing at all. Mm-hmm. But you know, they put out a lot of stuff, and I knew some people that knew them, and they were nice guys, and, and they, they played were a part lot. of it. So just because I don't, I don't have a connection with it, doesn't mean it it isn't completely appropriate on my blog. Yeah. And E13 fell a little bit into that category for me. Like I never owned a copy of No Mercy for Swine, right? Uh, and now it's it's cost prohibitively expensive. And I, I've written Malcolm several times and tried to get him to to repress that record. And he didn't <laughs> have any interest in doing so, right? Um, and then the the other thing is E13 actually recorded an unreleased record, a full album. Mm, wow, very um, cool. Which I which I have, and it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And again, like that that's one that. Um, Malcolm still says he is going to put that out as a vinyl release on Fatal Erection. I haven't spoken to him about it in 
probably three years. Mm. But when I last spoke to him, he asked me not, you know, to be sure to, to, to please not put it on the blog because the intention was to eventually give it a proper release. Yeah. Um, nice. And, and that, that's one that I would love to post because it's so good. And, and the, the punishment <laughs> farm demo, which I have and, um, Trey Gunn, who was the guitar player and is still performing and is quite an incredible guitar oh, player. Very much so. Uh, asked, asked me to, to not post that because he wanted to remaster it before it was released. Got it. That was in 2012. <laughs> Some of these <laughs> so things like, take it, time. <laughs> I, I used to be a lot more diligent about chasing things down and writing people and like writing them again. Mm -hmm. And the, the longer I did the blog and, and having you know, a family of my own and a job to maintain and stuff. I just got to the point where I don't really do that anymore. Like I'll, sure. I might send out an, uh, a phishing email every once in a while to try to get someone to send me a tape. But for the most part, I just let it come to me now. I just don't, I, I, I'd love to still like chase it down and track people down. And, but it's just, there's a point when you just don't have the energy or time to do so. You, you have to mm -hmm. just take what comes to you and, and be glad that even that's coming in. Um, yeah, for sure. I, 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 you know, the again that passion project uh, idea, where you know, um, in a way, your blog is kind of like a venue, and so you can only put as much time into it as you have time for. So, <laughs> um, uh, but I, yeah, there's some really excellent gems and stuff, and uh, you know, I mean, obviously. Um, people make a lot of submissions to it. I, I wanted to ask about uh, Robert Shepard, who um, I have come to know through um, uh, other connections and whatnot, uh, because uh, he was telling me that he's uh, sent in quite a few things of, of little groups and whatnot that he's familiar with or worked with. Um, uh, 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 are you familiar with uh, who I'm talking about, Robert? Oh, yeah, yeah. Robert's actually been one of the biggest supporters of the blog. I've never mm. met Robert in person, but he sent me a lot of stuff. I mean, and, and from all over the musical range too. I mean, he's, uh, yeah, I think his current project is giant worm. Yes. And he sent me a little bit of that. He sent me all of the state versus the free will turn signals stuff. And that's, oh, that's yes. actually one of my favorite Eugene projects ever. And I didn't <laughs> know that that even existed. Oh, I mean, wow. I only got it because he emailed me the tracks. I, I didn't sure. know of them when I lived in Eugene. I never saw them play, but, um, that experimental stuff that they do, uh, like I just can't get enough of it. I think they're fantastic. Yeah, um, he sent me all those on uh, on discs. Uh, again, a band that I had heard of only, but like I, I assumed it was one of these like uncaptured things that you hear about at parties. You know, we're like, oh yeah, well I'll never know that. And then uh, he, I got I got it in the mail from him one day where he's like, yeah, here's here's everything they ever did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's and and he he has sent me some of like Trey Gunn's solo tapes. Oh, uh, wow. He has sent me there was one one tape he sent me. It was of a guy that just used to play piano outside the EMU. Oh whoa! And and and, and, and I think that if I remember correctly, um, there's a guy named Douglas McGowan who. Uh, oh, with uh, who, who's been into the blog and yeah, the you, numero you, group you, guy. You may know Douglas. So like a big, big music guy. Um, he. Uh, does a lot of like new age stuff. Mm -hmm. And apparently this piano player went on to be like a, a noted recording artist for Wyndham Hill. <laughs> but, like, Robert's sending me this, this self-released cassette from 1980 or 81. Wow. <laughs> so it's, it's fun to see stuff like that. And especially if the people have continued to work, mm -hmm. it, it's, mm -hmm. it can be kind of fun to see how their work evolved. Yeah. Um, 
I think um, that Doug also was responsible for getting that Numero Group reissue of the Freefall tape. That that sounds right to me. Like I haven't spoken to him in a while, but like we, um, I, I went to his place and hung out with him once when I was visiting Eugene, mm. and like we we've traded a couple things, like the, the Chuck Clearwater tapes that are on my blog. Oh, okay. Uh, that I also love. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Those those were both things that Douglas. Like House of Records cleared out their basement and had like a ten cent cassette bin. So Douglas <laughs> bought these cassettes that Chuck self released. I mean, and Chuck, I believe, has been dead since nineteen ninety. Oh wow! Um, so Chuck self released these cassettes in like nineteen eighty two, and Douglas bought them out of a budget bin at House of Records in like two thousand fourteen. <laughs> so they, they like they, like the odds against those cassettes surviving, right? Are just astronomical. And then like when I heard them, like one of them is recorded entirely on four track and Chuck was the drummer in punishment farm, but he played everything. So he plays guitar, bass, drums, and sings all on a four track demo that he recorded himself. That sounds better than almost any four track demo you've ever heard. (laughs) And then later you find out like, Oh, and he also owned a recording studio in New York for a while. Wow. He's just a very musically blessed person. (laughs) Very um, cool. That unfortunately uh, had a variety of personal issues that led to a, an unfortunate early death. And yeah. that's, that's one thing that's been depressing about the blog. Um, yes. And, and it's probably why in the last couple of years I've, I've kind of posted less and less. Mm. I've always been disappointed in the writing. I've always felt like the, the writing and the stories on the blog should be more engaging, mm. but I never have time to write. Them. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so uh, but, but then like for a while it felt like the blog was becoming a, like a, an, an in memoriam. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it felt like every other post I was doing was because someone had recently passed away. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like uh, you know, this one actually goes back a while, but like you know, uh, Robert from Oswald Five O, um, who also worked at House of Records and um, uh, had been playing music forever. Um, uh, Robert Christie, uh, I, I when he died, I definitely had this moment of having to re-listen to all my Eugene tapes for a couple of weeks just to <laughs> kind of help process it. Yeah, I, I lived in L.A. when that happened. Mm. Um, and I, I would go so far as to say Robert and I actually were friends. Oh, wow. Um, but it was never like, we were never like the, like, hey, we're the kind of friends that you come over and we listen to records. Or sure. hang, we weren't that kind of friends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We were the kind of friends where I lived on 12th Street, like 12th and Lawrence, and sure. Robert and his wife Denise lived, I don't know, two or three blocks from it. I don't even know where they lived. Mm-hmm. But I did know that if I went to the Lincoln school and was shooting baskets somewhere in the vicinity of Robert getting off work, mm-hmm. that there would be like a pickup basketball game constantly. <laughs> so so like I, I spent a lot of time playing basketball with Robert and like Greg oh. Sutherland, oh, wow. uh, who at House of Records. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's a lot, like always a lot of Eugene band people playing these super physical games of basketball. And like Robert was the king of fouling. Like, <laughs> he, used his, and he, like he used his elbows as a weapon when he pivoted. Oh, dang. And he was, and like, and he, he was like a very, Robert was not like a big frame guy. Mm-hmm. But if you listen to the, like I saw him playing drums and I saw him break a snare head more than once. <laughs> playing drums. And, and Robert did everything with that kind of intensity. Like when he passed you the basketball, it was mm. with maximum velocity, whether Oof. it needed to be or not. Like he just, um, oh. 
man. So if you have very fond memories of Robert, he's also one of the funniest people. Oh yeah, yeah. That I, that I ever met, like just like I, I remember. I was buying a Tom Waits CD at House of Records once, mm-hmm. and I asked Robert if he heard it, and he was like, nah, this is music for people with neat shoes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, my okay, since we're telling House of Robert, uh, Records Robert stories, uh, House of Robert, House of Records uh, Robert stories, uh, I, when I went in one day to buy, um, I'm trying to remember the exact combo, I think it was um, Double Nickels on the Dime, uh, Generic Flipper, and uh, the thirteen point plan to destroy America by Nation of Ulysses, um, mm-hmm. and so I, I bought those three. Came to the counter, and Robert looked at him, and he's like, "Oh man, you're gonna have a great afternoon." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's you know, it's it's. I remember, I remember a few exchanges with Eugene music folk that worked mm. in record stores that had a lasting impact. I, I, I remember one Lucy said to me. I was buying Ramones LPs and like a couple of Cocteau Twins records oh, okay. at Earth River. Sure. And she, and she and she was like, "Hey, you know what the difference in these records is?" And I'm like, "No." And she goes, "The Cocteau Twins records are the ones you're going to be selling somewhere in a year or two." No. She's right. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> she was 100% right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, some people can uh, clock us. Um, my favorite thing about going into Green Noise, if we're going to tell record store um, stories, um, is that uh, uh, Ryder, um, when he was working there, uh, after about three or four times going in, he knew me right away. And so he'd be like, oh, hey, I saw some stuff come in I think you might like. And you drag me off into the corner and show me some Dinosaur Jr. release or whatever. Um, and uh, it, it, it was one of those things where, like, the Eugene scene, not just the bands, but, like, it extended to all these, like, um, uh, ancillary characters who were all, like, oh, you're part of the scene, too. I got something for you. Oh, hey. You know, like, they were all so, like, into, like, helping people find stuff. And uh, I don't know. It was, it was a very special place in my mind. That, that, that's pretty true. Like, I remember when Green Noise was in... Uh... I think it was on like Sixth and Lawrence, and, and a house was their first location. Because oh. I remember Bunny Summer practiced in an apartment in back of Green Noise. <laughs> oh, no, very funny! <laughs> and and, and there, was a, there was a big practice space back there. Uh, Doug Wilkerson, who used to be in Mind Garage and Super Christ as the drummer, mm. lived in the apartment that had access to this weird basement, which was a converted practice space, and like. Dogwater practice there and Super Christ. There's like ten bands practicing out of that one place. It's, it was like the new behind the House of Records practice space after they tore that down. Right. Oh wow. That's see, and that and that's the kind of stuff that um, you don't even get those stories on certain singles. You know, like when when we filter the entire world through releases, we miss all these great stories about. I used to practice behind this record store or <laughs> this guy put out a tape uh, of his piano stuff. Yeah, I mean, like there, there's so many little di- bits like that that um, require this kind of um, uh, oral tradition, this like in-person conversation to get the pieces because uh, otherwise they just kind of disappear like these tapes. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really too, uh, you're right. Like uh, the stories are so fun and... Mm-hmm. Gosh, now that you mentioned Robert, I, I just remembered. Um, well, I'm sure you know you know K Pants, right? Oh yes, yes. Yeah. I, I still treasure my K Pants singles. <laughs> yeah, I, um, well, like Corey from from Pants uh, is, is a pretty good friend of mine, and like he uh, 
he and Robert worked together at House of Records for years, and then Corey moved to Los Angeles, which is where I got to know him. Weirdly, I got to know him much better in Los Angeles than I did when I lived in Eugene, and we were both in band. That's so funny. But, uh, so he moved there, and he and Robert used to write each other letters, mm. uh, typewritten letters, and I, I, I think that may eventually become a PDF on the blog or something, because I know Corey was really wow. um, wanting to somehow like share as much of Robert's memory as he could because like Robert yeah. and it, it's so tough to, to try to explain Robert to someone that that never met Robert it's mm-hmm. he was just so funny and present and engaged it's just so quick yeah the few I mean, I, I, in, in Los in Los Angeles the closest thing I ever found to a group of creative people that were s- supportive of each other rather than in competition <laughs> um, was stand-up comedians Oh, interesting. Um, that was the only place I, I loved the Los Angeles stand-up comedian scene of the late '90s was very similar to how Eugene's music scene felt. Hmm. Um, interesting. And I, I, I found that a lot of uh, I can't remember where I even read this, but that a lot of musicians there's a lot of crossover between comedians and musicians hmm. because it's something about having the inherent skill of timing. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of people have made this comment before, but you know, so many musicians have a comedic bone in them that they channel from time to time, and so many comedians really just wish they were rock stars. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, it's funny. That's really true. Um, and like, I, there's a comedian named Kyle Kinane mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. Um, is is I, I think pretty popular. He's got a Netflix special. Yeah. But I. I uh, he tweeted out something about um, the Cherry Pop and Daddy's name. Oh. And about how, like, what's the most, like, grotesque and offensive thing we can possibly name our band? It was something like that. And it was, it was kind of a funny tweet, and I remember forwarding it to, uh, to Steve mm-hmm. uh, from the Cherry Pop and Daddy's. But I, I just remember thinking, like, like, he... Sometimes there's a lack of recognition or, or you just, you know, you say something and you don't know the person. And I remember thinking, okay, Kyle, that's kind of a funny tweet, but at the same time, you're a comedian and I know some of the daddies guys. And if we're talking about the original lineup of the cherry pop and daddies, you'd be the fourth funniest person in the band. Right. <laughs> like, like, yes. Like there, there's just, that, that's something that I, um, more more scenes would do well to highlight the humor. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's people in Eugene, like Robert Christie could have been a great stand-up. Oh. Yeah, Bruno. Wow. Bruno would be... Fantastic. Yeah, that, <laughs> that guy is just hilarious. I, I, you know, Wayne Schellabarger is hilarious. Joe Brooks was absolutely hysterical. Yeah. I so many of those people were so funny. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I, 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 there's so much, like... Um, that is speaking of the humor, like that ferociously stoned album. I've tried to explain this to people who know the daddies from more bigger exposure. That like there is a sense of humor to that record and a uh, actually a performance quality that I much prefer over any of their major release stuff. <laughs> like it just it's it so captures that era of that band better than I think anything later did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the, the Daddy's albums. Um, they're, they're interesting because, like, musically, they're all over the place. Yeah. Uh, like my wife's my wife's from Buffalo, and like w- when I met her, you know, it was like two thousand three, and the, the Daddies had had Zoot Suit Riot. I think it was a big hit in like ninety eight or something. So she knew that song, and she knew 
them as a swing band. Right. And then I played like an entire album for her and she's like, that's all over the place. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, that's why, that's why their records were never going to sell in huge numbers to the mainstream because mainstream, I, I think the mainstream needs it to all fit into one thing yeah. from beginning to end where the daddies might have like, okay, here's three swing songs, three punk rock songs, a ballad and two rock songs. Yeah. I mean, it, it, they, they were, they were almost like incoherent. Like, but if you know the people, you're like, Oh, it doesn't really bother me because I know those guys. <laughs> and like, right. I, I know mm-hmm. that their tastes are all over the place. So I don't need it to be, Mm-hmm. all set in one genre yeah they were almost closer to like mr bungle than they were to like a swing band or something like that where they that's were like, really accurate that's they, really accurate because they're primarily known as a swing band but yeah if you if you look at their entire body of work that's a that's a minor percentage of what they did yeah for sure for sure <clears throat> well um you know i don't really have very much else to ask uh this is it's always fun to reminisce about the scene because I mean I, I was definitely in it later than you were but my experience in Eugene I, you know coming from a small town Cottage Grove really weren't bands per se <laughs> not then anyway um, to Eugene where there was just this vibrant community of artists making tapes and flyers and putting on shows it just felt it felt like I lived in a real city finally <laughs> um, it, we, we didn't have a dissimilar experience in that way because you know I grew up in Junction City and, and our your experience in Cottage Grove was, was probably not dissimilar like when right. you find Modern Mono on the radio you know there's this whole world a- mm-hmm. out there but you know you're, you're too young and, and don't have a car or something so you can't set foot in that world yet yeah so but when you get to Eugene you're just totally ready to dive in and participate in any way you can because you've already wanted to do it for a couple of years. Yeah, that, that's how it was for me, at least. Well, and 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 in, uh, also when you get to Eugene, you realize you can walk all over the place. So all these shows are places that you can get to without a car, so you don't have to. You know, it, it like there was something about the smallness of the town in certain ways that like a bicycle was enough uh, in a way that like. When I lived in a small town and there was nothing to do, all you wanted was a car to just drive anywhere. <laughs> yeah, you're really right. And, and also, I, I'm flashing back to my teen years now, and I remember um, how much we utilized the bike trails to get from one show to another. And you could mm. basically, like, by, by bypassing city streets and you know, doing the unsafe thing and walking on unlit bike trails in the dead of night, <laughs> you could easily you make several shows in the same night I, I forgot i used to do that as a teenager i'd go to like an emu dining hall show and then the second that was over i'd walk straight to the wow hall and still be able to catch the headliner <laughs> wow that, that that's so perfect that's so perfect totally forgot about that until you mentioned it Thank you. <laughs> wtbc radio is also sponsored by peggy's vegan hot sauce Locally made in Portland, Oregon, Peggy's Sauce is 100% vegan and 100% ready for you to experience a taste explosion you'll want again and again. Available in three flavors, Hotter Melon, Ghostberry, Five Star Gary, Carolina Reaper. That's with avocados. For more information about Peggy's Sauce, including ordering inquiries, please visit Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce all one word, on either Facebook or Instagram. Let me say it one more time. Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce. When you need a little something with an extra kick. 
you know, I, I don't have anything else. I'll just close by my one uh, final brag. You know, as somebody who spent a lot of time in Eugene watching bands and watching shows and trying to like get to know people. Uh, I finally got to play at the Well Hall uh, this year. <laughs> oh, fun! Yeah. I never did that. It was really wild because I was sitting there, I, I was so self-aware that I was on this stage where I had been watching like a hundred No Means No shows, and <laughs> you know, just it was really, it was really wild for me. <laughs> oh God! I, I, now, oh man, that's another weird flight. Yeah, I saw No Means No at Club Kirby. In like 1989, I think 88. Oh dang! God. So you saw them way. Early. So when I saw them finally, um, oh gosh, I, I I caught up to them much later. So this must have been like 95, 96 when I when I started getting into them. Um, so I, I went to the very next show they <laughs> played in town, and uh, nice. They were astounding live. They just they had such a, a great presence that was like, um. I know that they're broken up now, so this is why I'm, I feel okay to reminisce about them. Uh, they were uh, a kind of loud and a kind of like punishing that was just so delightful. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think I've listened to it yet, but I, I found the Modern Minds album on a blog a few weeks ago. The, the, hmm. Their previous band, oh, Pre No Means No. Interesting. Um, I can't remember where I found that. I got to listen to that though. Hmm. They they were a little poppier. Oh, okay, I guess that makes sense because they would have been what younger, like early teens or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. You find that like power pop's an easy thing to start with because you know it's easy to write a four quarter. <laughs> right, um, right. Uh, well, um, you know, I'll close with this question then. Um, there's tons of releases on the blog. Uh, people should go to panicon13th.blogspot.com. The Facebook page has uh, great uh, images and pictures and video links and all sorts of stuff. Um, I'll make sure that those are uh, linked or in there. Um, now, oh, thanks. Uh, of all of these uh, releases and whatnot, there's obviously some unreleased ones that we were talking about that you're like, you know, uh, I wish I could put out because they're so great. Um, let's talk about a couple of your favorites that are on the blog that uh, people can find. Because, like, I mean, we mentioned E13, um, which that's the only way I, I, I finally heard them was through here. But, like, um, it doesn't have to be something that you only discovered recently. But, you know, what are some of these other things we should highlight that uh, people should t uh, check out? Well, to me, I mean, trying to approach it from a my personal taste is irrelevant. But <laughs> the first thing I would tell anyone to download off of my blog would be all of the compilation tapes. Yes. Because, like, right there, like, that's a great jumping off point. And then you can just dive into whoever you liked off of those tapes and, you know, explore that more. Mm -hmm. But just, like, my personal favorite Eugene releases, um, Rawhead Rex, mm -hmm. the, the Tango the Void record, is, oh, okay. like, like if the, I don't know if you've ever heard that record, but that's a record that if it had come out on vinyl when it was recorded in 1989, Eugene would have been on the map. Oh, interesting. If, if, if Rawhead Rex had been from Seattle or right. the Bay Area or Los Angeles, mm -hmm. they would have gotten a, uh, like a money truck would have just backed up to their house. Yeah. Um, but they were from Eugene, so they recorded <laughs> one of the greatest albums in the history of Northwest Rock, and it never made it past cassette. Wow. See, I, um, I think there was a couple of examples like that of, of Eugene bands where you know uh if they had been in a slightly different context they would have gone bigger but because they were also delivering bread the next day like they just you know they made a little tape on the side 
Yeah, it felt like Eugene was just an easy place to not pull off the freeway for a record company when with Portland and Seattle right up the way. <laughs> right. Uh, but but I, like, I, I always felt like, yeah, Snake Pit had been a Seattle band in the mm. late 80s or early 90s. Yeah. I, I don't know if they would have been world famous, but I bet they have like four or five CDs that you could still buy. Sure, sure. Um, and, you know, other bands. The yeah, Rawhead Rex sticks out in my mind. Oh, and the, the Moose Lodge, the New World Babies cassette. Mm, okay. Um, that That is actually such a good synth punk album that some guy from New York downloaded it from my blog and asked me for Bruno's contact information because he wanted to put it out on vinyl. Oh, whoa. And, and like, <laughs> n- nothing ever happened with it. Like, I asked Bruno a few years later, he was like, nope, guy never contacted me, but it's like, the guy the guy ran some small record label and he's like, I keep playing this for people at the office and nobody can believe how good it is. <laughs> and it's like, well, you've got a really funny lead singer and most of the rhythm section of E13, so it shouldn't be that surprising. Right, right, yeah. The, I, it, more and more of these discoveries are going to get made because, I mean, not just this Numero Group release with the Freefall tape, but uh, I, I suspect that a, a few other things here are going to burble up now and then because, I mean, there really were some gems in the Eugene scene. Yeah, I, I'm. I, I had a little bit of success. Oh, this is another thing people should download. I I, I did a couple of uh, compilations that I called Ghosts of Thirteenth Street, um, mm-hmm. and I intended to make that a monthly thing. But I think I'm only on volume four, and I started doing it like four years ago, so that hasn't really worked out. Um, <laughs> Yearly, monthly. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's all the same. I mean, yeah, who's counting? Right. But uh, those those are good places to start too, and. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about doing a new compilation, but I might. Uh, I, I think this one's going to be limited to vinyl singles. Oh, cool! That came out of Eugene for bands that only put out one single, and I think I'm going to call it "Singles Going Nowhere." <laughs> oh. oh, nice! Yeah, that, that, uh, that you know, it was so exciting to me when a Eugene band put out a 45, like or a seven inch. Like I it just it, there was something about it that just felt like. Oh, it's possible. We can we could do this, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it, it really it really does make things seem possible. I mean, like seeing a Snake Pit record or a Sun Velvet Sidewalk record or you know, anything like when someone actually has a full album come out, it's mm-hmm. you're like, you know, that that really is just patience and and saving some money. Like I that was actually something Robert said to me. Um, one of the basketball things, like I, I Bunny Summer was not doing much of anything mm-hmm. and we wanted to record, but we didn't have any money. And Robert was an Oswald. And of course they, they've recorded ridiculous amounts of stuff. I mean, there's probably yeah. still like at least two Oswald records that could be released of just uncollected material. I want, um, I want to hear those records. <laughs> well, they, they, the band doesn't even have some of their demos. Oh, wow. <laughs> there was a good the, collection. The, 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 the very first session was recorded at, at Yo-Yo in Olympia, and uh, I asked Diane and Gary, and neither one of them had that session. Oh, whoa. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But Robert told me, I, I remember when I was just like, yeah, you know, we want to record, but we don't have any money. He's like, well, don't you guys just play the shows, and then whatever you're paid, you pocket that money until you have enough to record? Isn't that just what a band does? And I was like, oh, no, my bands all play a show, and then at the end of the night, whatever we're being paid as a band doesn't even cover, like, half of our bar tab, and then we have to pay out of pocket. For the... So, like, it was just a completely – I've never thought of approaching, like, 
you know, our hobby band as with a professional attitude. Right. <laughs> and that's, that's really what he was doing. It's like, well, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you, you get a show, you save the money, and then when you have enough, you book a recording session. It's like, naturally, that's, that's what you do. But <laughs> oh, Robert's so great. <laughs> yeah, miss uh, that guy. Miss yeah, that guy. me too. Well, this has been a great conversation. As a fan of the blog and as a fan of um, just, you know, old rock and roll from the from the 90s and, and, and 80s, uh, it, it fills a very uh, much-needed space uh in music and uh it's it's excellent to have this so thank you very much (laughs) thank you it's uh it's been a pleasure doing it um even if sometimes it uh it gets socially awkward when you're contacting people that you've never met like hey remember when 25 years ago you were in a band (laughs) it's it's, uh but yeah it's it's been an eye-opener it's been a lot of fun i uh yeah. It, it's been fun kicking around in the past that way. I'm, I'm glad that it's fun for other people too. Yeah. Well, and, and I hope that it sparks eventually interest in other people capturing their own scenes. Cause like, I mean, I would love to be able to dip in and out of places to ch- say like, Oh wait, what was Minnesota like in the eighties or, you know, whatever. Like um, I'm sure that there's great resources to be found if people could present them. So. I, I feel the same way. Um, and and of all the cities I can think of, the, the two that are the most shocking to me that they don't have one are Vancouver, B.C. Mm. and Los Angeles. Yeah. Like Los Angeles, I have so much of early Los Angeles' punk stuff that I could start a Los Angeles blog at this point. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, like, I mean, there's a few different live things that try to document specific venues and things like that, but the, I mean the overall scene in LA is so big and there's so many corners of it that would be excellent to kind of re-expose like, yeah. Uh, somebody out there, please start an LA blog. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and the stuff that makes it to vinyl on, as reissues of old LA bands, it's no different than how stuff is collected from my panic blog. Right. Like, are you familiar with the bags? Oh yeah. Yeah. A band that largely I know only through live recordings. Because that's all there is. Yeah. I mean, like they, they recorded a total of five studio songs in their entire career, mm. and they just had that one Danger House single. But a punk reissue about ten years ago put out a full length, mm. and over half of the record was off of a live cassette that they found in one of the band members' closets. <laughs> I mean, oh. it's like that, that, and so it's like that. That's yeah. That, that's how that's how all this stuff is going to be found. But yeah, Los Angeles badly, mm-hmm. badly needs. Uh, a history site like mine. Yeah. Well, there was the same story with the Avengers too, where um, uh, Penelope Houston was noticing people were trading these bootleg recordings of sessions that they had never released. And so she was like, Oh, I should probably release this stuff because people are finding it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. And then that's, that's why we got, well, it's funny because like the the Avengers pink album, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if they, released that but as far as i know there's never been a real official release of the avengers album on cd all of them are bootlegs right um and i I think the band is probably releasing it themselves sort of like the dickies did when warner brothers still owned all their early records the dickies were pressing bootlegs of their own cds (laughs) makes Um, sense but uh yeah God, it's it's funny to think about that now. How the Dickies actually had to bootleg themselves. <laughs> I 
I, I imagine that, no, that that's, I mean, like, doesn't that go back to kind of like credence and whatnot, where like they didn't own half of their catalog for most of their uh, career? <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, I didn't know that. Yeah, there was. I, I didn't know that. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm as much as I know about Eugene and some independent stuff. You'd be amazed by the gigantic gaps in my basic rock music knowledge. Oh yeah, I, I, you know, I only know the broad stroke outlines, but I think that there was like a period where they did a few albums for a label, uh, Credence did, uh, and then afterwards continued to be a band for quite some time, but didn't have any rights to these records, and so. They would play all the songs live, but then they couldn't sell them to their fans. <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's funny how that was foreshadowing for the way music would go. Right. Oh. Because at this point, like, if, if you're making money as a band, it's because you're playing live. It's not because you're selling records. 100 Yes, 100%. Like, unless you somehow can manufacture the record entirely yourself and keep the profits entirely from selling it to a fan, which... I mean, sooner or later, you have to ask someone to print your inset or something like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's so hard to be but, self-contained but, in that way. But what you're, um, are you familiar with uh, the the Portland band Richmond Fontaine? Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I think they, 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 they broke up two or three years ago. But yeah. um, uh, Willie, who was the Willie Vlauten, who was the singer mm-hmm. and songwriter for that band, he I met him when he lived in Eugene. Oh, okay. uh, he went to UFO for a while. I, I recorded a demo of him in like 1989. Oh, funny. Um, but Richmond Fontaine, I remember talking to Willie because their first few records came out on, you know, small to mid-sized regional Northwest labels. Mm-hmm. And eventually they got to the point where they were like touring Europe and stuff. Right. And Willie told me, like, yeah, none of that ever would have happened if we hadn't started self-releasing our records. He's like, every record we put out for a label lost the label money, and then as soon as we started doing it all ourselves, suddenly we had enough money to get to Europe and get a tour van. Mm, kids, take note. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just one of those things where with the internet, you, like, I don't understand, and I don't know a lot about how this stuff works, but I don't understand why anyone would be on a major label anymore. Right. Like, like you, as, a, as a distribution arm, you don't mm-hmm. need it very few people buy traditional discs or records anymore. Everything's a download. You can set that up yourself. Yeah. And then nobody else has any input. It's like, in the end, mm-hmm. punk rock won. <laughs> no, totally, totally. Well, and like, let's be even more specific than that, too. Like, it has always been a case, even when you did have a label to be on, that whatever the quality of your music, the the, 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 the value of the things you make is going to dictate how well you, you do, you know? Like, uh, the Ramones, for all of their shortcomings, were a great band. And so no matter how those records were released, they were going to sell a lot of records. Uh, and so take note, as a young artist, like, you could be on any label in the world, but if no one knows who you are and you don't make very good music, it doesn't matter. Like the the whole point is you got to make a good, interesting record. You got to make something that you like, and then uh, an audience will find it. Well, and there's even a de- depressing flip side to that that I was not aware of uh, before <laughs> I moved to Los Angeles and started ta- you know meeting people that were actually in the music industry and A and R people and stuff mm. and just finding out that like oh like all of the ways that I thought things worked and how major labels were you know evil and and destroy artists like like I was so naive about how bad it really is. <laughs> and, and and like I, I had things explained to me by A and R people. It's like, oh yeah, there's there's times where if we have some band that's recorded a record that we think is gonna be huge, the label will send us out to sign a whole bunch of other bands that sound like that to just bury them. 
Right. So there's, so there's, so there's all these tax write-off contracts mm-hmm. where a band gets signed to a major label, they record an album, the album is released with little to no publicity, and it tanks, and the band loses a ton of money on the recording costs and the manufacture of the discs, and then the label writes the whole thing off, and then the band is stuck in a contract that they can't get out of. Yeah. And they just break up. That happens all the time. Yeah. That happened to the best bands in Los Angeles that I was aware of in the late 90s mm-hmm. that got signed. That's what happened to them. I'll tell a personal story. I know of a friend of mine uh, from right here in, in Salem, actually, who's in a band called Pilot, uh, which uh, had, a, I think it was a three-piece, and they got signed at a time right when grunge was breaking big uh, in the mid-'90s. And so, to my knowledge, none of their albums ever got released, but I think they recorded, like, three records. Uh, and just for label politics and financial reasons and all these other things... Those albums only came out, I think, recently. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, and it was fine. It was like the rights finally reverted, and the guy who was the head of the band was like, you know, I'm just gonna put these on Bandcamp. I don't care anymore, you know. And he, they had all mm-hmm. moved on to other projects. I, all three of them are in. They're currently working artists, um, but like. It, it, what a bummer, you know, to have been signed to record music that you liked and you know was excited to play and then to have never gotten to release it <laughs> well and, and especially yeah and that, that whole tax write-off situation especially like you know if you if you're a band and like you've reached a point where a major label is talking to you and offering you a contract i mean you like to think like this is it yeah we did it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know like we can now like we can make money and make a living at, at this thing that we love without having to sweat some of the smaller details finally mm-hmm. and then you find out that it's just a whole different set of details to sweat and that they might have a, a way bigger impact on you than you think and they also might all be completely out of your control <laughs> right yeah so, so it's just like the more I, I don't know i just i don't understand why any band would want to be on a record label now yeah well especially given now that we, we've proved that not with with the internet like you you can compete with those big artists on the same playing field like your cd can look as good your music sounds as good uh, the only difference is that, like, maybe you live in a different, you're not in a, a, a big rock star town, you know? Like, maybe you live somewhere else. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, just to, to give you another example, like, my, my wife likes much more mainstream music than I do for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, she, she really likes uh, the, the L.A. band AWOL Nation. Okay. Uh, and uh, their videos are, you know, on YouTube and in normal places that mainstream videos are. Mm-hmm. I bought their last album for her at Fred Meyer, <laughs> and if you look on the and if you look on the back of the album, mm-hmm. it is completely they recorded it themselves, they mastered it themselves, they produced it. Everything they did was independent, and it's on their record label. There's not another record label on the back of there. The only thing they do with a major is they have a distribution deal to a major, but the major has no say whatsoever in the product. Yeah, it's just, do you want to sell this or not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and I think that's the way to go. If you can, if you can maintain complete creative control over your efforts, yeah, I think it's worth it to make less money and have it be that way. And I think your career will have more longevity as a result. Because I think when other people start telling you, tweak it like this, tweak it like that, they're trying to make you fit into whatever's selling at that moment. Right. No, for sure. And, and, and instead of whatever instinctually you should be doing. 
Yeah. Well, and, and I think what you have captured with your blog, too, is these uh, moments where people were able to, when they were fully creative without that influence, uh, make these really cool, weird, unique releases that couldn't have been made if there was any kind of record label structure in place. You know, oh, yeah. And, I mean, so, so often, I mean, how, how often is a band's first record their best record? Oh, for a sure. Of, a lot of the time for me. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's, that's, that's the, like the first record is the one that is the least dicked around with. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's all of the, the private inside jokes and like the, the riffs that they really like at first that get them super excited. Because uh, later then they start getting into the song craft stuff and they're like, oh, I need to write something that means something. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> For us this week here on the program, my conversation with Jeff Sellers, uh, who hosts and maintains the uh, Panic on Thirteenth blog, which, if you could not tell from our conversation, is a, a place for videos, tapes, and ephemera from the Eugene independent DIY scene, uh, particularly in the '80s and a little bit in the early '90s. Uh, at least that's where Jeff's expertise cuts off, but, uh, you know, I have some fondness for those 90s years. You know how it is. Uh, one, uh, note of, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, bookkeeping, I guess we gotta take care of. I misidentify in the interview the numero group release that is coming out, at least it was at the time of the interview, because essentially, I call it Freefall. I thought they were reissuing the Freefall tape. <laughs> I was wrong. It is called Switched on Eugene. That is the uh, name that the numero group settled on, and uh, it's uh, all sorts of stuff, not just things from the Freefall tape, although I think stuff from the Freefall tape is on the compilation. So anyway, um, I get that wrong couple of times talking to Jeff, although I don't think that anything was out yet, and I don't think uh, Jeff actually knew much about the comp. Uh, I think he had met uh, the uh, folks putting it together, and that's the extent of that. So um, anyway, uh, hopefully the corrections department isn't too frustrated with me, and uh, those of you listening at home now have the rest of the story, as they used to say. Um, that's going to do it for us this week. Um, I'm going to put links all over the place in the show notes for this one, so please check those out. Um, Jeff's blog's pretty cool. And, and the companion blog that I mentioned, uh, that was, uh, hosted by Josh from Artless Motives, uh, it's also pretty cool. Eugene had a very cool, special scene that I was, uh, quite fond of, and, um, yeah, hopefully some of these, uh, recordings and whatnot illustrate what I'm talking about. Visit us at anywhenanywhere.com. That's our home away from home, where you can find out information about every 
back episode of this program and uh, all sorts of other stuff and whatnot. Uh, hopefully it's a good nexus for things that we are involved in. And uh, yeah, I think that's going to do it for us this time. You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. Without you, there would be no program. Be seen here. Your 